This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted to be joined this afternoon by my great friend, Rabbi Ben Spratt. Rabbi Ben Spratt now serves at Congregation Road of Shalom on New York City's Upper West Side. He was ordained at JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, in 2008, where he focused on Jewish philosophy and won a number of awards. Uh, Ben grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and his Jewish journey took him through a whole variety of Jewish movements, and we'll talk a little about that, conservative, renewal, orthodox, reconstructionist, seemingly everything. So in addition to um, being a rabbi at uh, Road of Shalom, Ben is a fellow spouse of a clergy person himself. Exactly right. So if I'm the rabbi's husband, you're the cantor's husband. Exactly right. That should be the next podcast, I guess. <laughs> the, can- the cantor's husband, yes. So Ben, before we get started on your chosen passage, which um, for those listening, you can turn to Genesis 3. This will be the story of the Garden of Eden. Just tell us about your Jewish journey, because it is so interesting. So my journey started in the great bastion of Jewish wisdom, that is Salt Lake City, Utah, as you mentioned. And I am the offspring of a Mormon computer scientist and a Jewish English professor. And the way I entered the world was basically religion had torn my family apart. My mother's family, who uh, they had made Aliyah to Israel and became Orthodox, they disowned my mother when she met my father and fell in love with him and planned to marry him. And my father's family actually were very embracing, but didn't quite know what to do with these anomalous Jews there in Salt Lake City. And so I was raised in a fully Jewish home, and as my father was so supportive of that, ended up himself deciding to go on a Jewish journey and ended up converting to Judaism in my early childhood. And then the journey got very interesting. Um, My grandparents in Israel decided to reown the family, and I got to fly to Israel for the first time when I was 12. And I fell in love with my grandparents' Orthodox community, and that launched me into a love of learning, a love of text. And to make a long story short, I had a chapter there where I was Beltruva wearing a black hat and black suit and I spending a lot that. of time. Uh, were, you, were you living in Israel, Salt Lake City, or somewhere else? So by that point, we were living in Eugene, Oregon, uh, but I was You being spending... married at the time? No, no. This is uh, So this is when I was... Uh, really a teenager. So I I flew to Israel when I was 12 and started studying in yeshiva every summer in Israel, um, starting at age 13. And through most of my teenage years, that was how I was spending my summer. I even tried moving to Deal, New Jersey and going to a Jewish day school there. Um, but the, Sy- the Syrian community? Exactly right. You got it. How did that go? It was wonderful. They were very, I think, embracing. I was definitely this kind of alien life form that had come uh, suddenly and been planted in the middle of their community. They were very ge- generous and very embracing. Um, but I think what was interesting is that there was such cultural and familial unity that they had that I always felt like I was the outsider. And after about six weeks of that, realized that while I loved being immersed in a community where Judaism was really just the air that everyone was breathing, at the end of the day, I felt like it wasn't authentically where I belonged. So, 
And then you went to uh, JTS and are now the, I would say, the beloved rabbi at a large reform synagogue on the Upper West Side. Depends on who you ask. There are a few, hopefully, that uh, are willing to tolerate me. But yes, I feel very grateful. And um, it's not too often that you get to have a JTS rabbi uh, who's working in a reform synagogue. And that says probably as much about Rosh Shalom as it does about me. So, Well, great. So let's get into Genesis 3, which is your uh, chosen passage for discussion this afternoon. And this is the story of the Garden of Eden. So, Ben, what interests you specifically about the Garden of Eden? I think because it is such an iconic element and moment, and it's one that has been used to justify so many myriad elements of our society. And I'm not just talking about, again, Milton's Paradise Lost, but the way that we look at this origin story and the way in which we often misunderstand this origin story creates a very different trajectory about what was the intention of the creation of humanity? Uh, What was the very essence that defined us in our relationship to God? And from that moment of expulsion from the garden, how does that trajectory end up informing us today? And so often we read this as being simply the story of innocent, naive, or maybe inquisitive humanity beginning their existence in misdeed and misstep and disobedience. And that has brought forward the entire trajectory of human history. But I think that there's another way of reading this, and that's part of what I was hoping that we could get to explore a little bit today. Absolutely. So so let's just summarize. What's the conventional reading of this story? Borrowing a little bit from the Catholics, I think even in the Jewish world, we often will read this basically as being the fall. You know, humanity is created as being the apex, the epitome of creation, and God gives a very clear instruction that you're supposed to eat of all of the fruit that you want, but not, of course, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and says that if you do, you shall die. And of course, with the help of a little bit of a serpent, uh, we end up finding the pathway for Eve and Adam to consume the fruit of that tree. And in the wake of that, of course, people understand that uh, expulsion coming as a punishment for disobedience that they have somehow begun to notice their own nakedness. Maybe that's put them onto the path of sin, but basically how one sin has led to another sin, and therefore they're cast out of the garden, and the rest of human existence is living in this lesser state of being. Okay, so that's the conventional interpretation. What's your interpretation? My interpretation, in some ways, is really just trying to do a slightly closer read of the text. One of the things that's interesting is that if you end up going actually through chapter three, you're going to see that humanity is punished for disobedience, for eating from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that has to deal with labor pains uh, and the challenge of growing crops. Right. But if you go to the end of chapter three and starting with verse 22, you're going to see a very interesting little passage that we often ignore. So, and God said, now that the human has become like one of us, knowing good and bad, what if he should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever? So God banished him from the Garden of Eden to till the soil from which he was taken. What's remarkable about this passage is it's suggesting that the reason why God actually expels humanity from the garden is not because of disobedience. They already received a punishment for that. It's actually because God feared that if they ate from the tree of life, the other special tree of the garden, they would become immortal and therefore fully like God. And the implication of this is that these two trees make up the two aspects of distinction of divinity. 
that God possesses the knowledge of good and evil and is immortal. Humanity eats from one of those trees and in some ways becomes a demigod. And God expelling them through the Garden of Eden actually sets up the idea that the only aspect, perhaps, that distinguishes us from God is that we are mortal. And that, I think, is a very radical read. And it suggests, actually, that that act of defiance of eating from the tree actually put us onto a path of divinity. And far wiser people than me, as like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, asked the question uh, in his book, Heavenly Torah, how could something that makes you more godly possibly be bad, be sinful? And what's your answer to that? I think the answer actually is it's not. And if we go into the text, God says that humanity will die if they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent says, no, 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 you're not going to die. Right. And who ends up being correct? The serpent. Right. Just fascinating. And uh, some people will go back. And well, say, but, no, so, no, they, but he, God says, um, the serpent says, you will not die, but it, he doesn't time bound it. Is that significant? Well, maybe the serpent implies you won't die instantly, but God is implying you will become mortal. Then the question becomes, if they were already immortal and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they lost that mortality, if then they eat from the tree of life and it gets it back, are we dealing with the like Alice in Wonderland thing of, you know, drinking from the bottle or eating the cookie? And at least for me, the simpler, clearer read is that they were already mortal. And that part of what we're going to see here is the serpent elevating a truth that perhaps God was wanting to shroud and hide, which leaves us with a really interesting question that maybe goes to the heart of this podcast, which is why would God want to create a barrier for humanity to have the divine aspect of knowledge of good and evil? Why take the essence and maybe the truths of the universe and not make them readily obvious? And maybe this is the very path of what Torah is all about that part of what we're called to do is to bring that innate curiosity, the inquisitive spirit that makes us want to plumb the depths. And that if everything was easily accessible, would we ever get to cultivate that? Would we ever get to cultivate perhaps what is the divine aspect of us, which is reaching for more and more knowledge, deeper and deeper understanding? I don't know. What do you think? Well, do you think there's a chance that perhaps in the way God set up the question, he actually wanted Adam and Eve to eat from the tree because... He if you um, don't want your child to eat a cookie, or if you actually, if you do want your child to eat a cookie, one of the best ways to do it is to say, whatever you do, don't eat that cookie, right? Love that. Love that. So God points out, whatever you do, don't eat of the tree in the garden. And even though man was just introducing himself to God and the world at that point, but he's God. So let's presume even if he knew a little about man, he would have had a strong suspicion that in the way he set up the question, man would eat from the tree. Beautiful. I love that interpretation, Mark. And, and again, it elevates this idea of almost the maybe um, playful side of God, or, or even yes. maybe the part of God that we imagine tests us to see the kind of audacity that we see in Abraham and Moses is an audacity that uh, requires a person to be a little bit of a boundary crosser. And Is that what the word Hebrew means? Doesn't the word Hebrew means to cross over? You got it. Exactly right. We're called to be Ivrim, boundary crossers. Exactly. And it's almost that I think the way that you just framed this, Mark, is exactly right. You know, that why place two trees in the Garden of Eden and 
be afraid or want to keep a barrier for humanity to have access to those two things. As you just said, it would be like a parent putting a huge pile of cookies and a big cake on the table and saying, I'm going to go to the other room and whatever you do, don't taste of this delicious, amazing dessert, but you're not going to want to eat this. And, and, and you'd, be, you'd almost be a bad parent if you said that, left the room and came back and got your kid in trouble. Exactly right. And so that classic understanding or the classic read of the text in some ways almost turns God into this very abusive figure and creates a very muddled story that raises the whole question of why then create the whole garden and why have these trees? Well, do you think it's significant that the first people chose to eat from the tree of knowledge rather than the tree of life? Like, what does that say about them or perhaps about us? They're given these two trees. You can have knowledge or you can have the tree of life. And they chose knowledge. And I wonder if this is a little subversive nod from our biblical text to many of the other kind of uh, foundational myths or stories from other religions and cultures where it's that reaching for immortality that is the driving aspect, you know, Uh, Gilgamesh and he's trying his best to try to grasp the branch that will grant him immortality. And what is it saying that actually in the Jewish imagination, that our origin story is one where we're reaching actually for knowledge instead of immortality. And then that's the very aspect that makes us most divine. It's really interesting. Well, I think this also, um, there's this great passage in the Talmud where Alexander the Great, who apparently was a Philo-Semite, he's talking with the, the rabbis of his time, and he's asking them about immortality. And they make to point to him that if you, that the one way to guarantee failure in life is to strive to live as long as you can to take immortality, to make a long life your number one goal, because you will fail because you will die. Absolutely. And it's interesting to, you know, ponder for a moment, um, if the one aspect, and this is one of the ways to read the story, that the one aspect that distinguishes humanity from divinity is the absence of immortality. And if we're going to play off of Franz Rosenzweig for a moment, who believes that all of philosophy has been about humanity living under the shade, under the uh, struggle, under under the weight of Hades, of basically the fear of death. Wonder, how does the fear of death propel us to dive deeper into knowledge, to bring curiosity in question? And now, isn't the the answer, perhaps unanswered to that, revealed two parshas later? And again, in Vayakhi, when it says... Life of Sarah, that's the name of the Parsha, Haye Sarar, and the first thing she does in the Parsha is die, or the only thing she does in the Parsha is die. And then Vayaki, that means, right, and he lived, and it's a Parsha about Jacob's death. So I think what this is trying to teach us is that Sarah lived and Jacob lived because we're still talking about them today. So that's what it means to live forever in Judaism. Beautiful. We're talking about them on this podcast, how, however many thousands of years later. So they lived. Whereas Methuselah lives the longest chronological life in the Bible. I think it was 968 years. And nobody talks about Methuselah. No one knows what he stood for. No one learned anything from him. No one's inspired by him. No one names their children Methuselah. Tremendous. Tremendous more. And I mean, I think that's part of what's so powerful about the very modality you're engaged in is in many ways, this is the reminder that at some point or another in our life, we are all brought back to is that no matter what we do, no matter what we run after, we are not going to escape our own mortality. The question is, during that time, are we willing to cultivate wisdom? Are we willing to grasp additional perspectives? Are we willing to look at how our story threads into ancient stories? And 
you know, this idea of study as the ultimate vision, you know, the early rabbis that imagined that what is heaven like? It's sitting in yeshiva studying texts with God. Right. And there's something powerful in that. And, and it, the origin of that kind of psychic lens, I think, begins right in this moment of a humanity willing to hmm. defy even God in order to grasp onto knowledge. You know, other religions have the stories of Prometheus, you know, that humanity was reaching for fire and power. But what is it that in our sacred text we're saying, no, 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 what we're willing to defy, even divine order over it, is the seeking of knowledge. Beautiful. Because ultimately, that is the universal source of all light and all goodness. Right. Because the one thing we know for sure is that we're going to die. And I think what the Torah is telling us is in, in the context of, of, of that fact, which you just articulated so well, I think what the Torah is telling us, I know you want to live forever. Like, I know you realize two things. You, you want to live forever and you know you're going to die. So how do you do that? You live forever through the deeds that you do in this chronologically finite life. And uh, that's perhaps a lesson of why they reach for the tree of knowledge um, instead of the tree of life. Love that. Love that, Mark. Wonderful. So in your, in your work as a rabbi, do you see or think that most people fear death? Do people talk about it to you? I do. It's, it's so interesting. I think for all of us, we are made deeply uncomfortable by death, hmm. you know, to the point that we will often do everything we can to distance ourselves from it. It's so interesting when a, when, a person, when a person learns that another has died, one of the first questions is almost always, what happened? Very interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Right. We, we want to know the story. And, and when you pull back for a moment and ask yourself at this moment, like, Why? in this moment, a person who's grieving and just lost a loved one, does it actually matter how the person died? No, it ac actually doesn't for the person who's grieving when this interaction should really be about them and their pain, but we still want to know the story. Or about what the deceased stood for, just about anything except, uh, exactly. did he fall over and get hit by a chair or did he uh, die of some disease? What he's, he's, he's passed on. He stood for something and, and his, his mourners are mourning. Exactly. And yet we want to know the story because it allows us to uh, push it away from us. Like if we learn that a person died of cancer and we find out that they were a smoker, whether we'll ever say it out loud, we take a little bit of a deep breath because we can say to ourselves, well, maybe I'm making a different choice. We may find out about some tragic, tragic uh, experience that happened. And if we can show that we are making life choices that don't put us in that place or engage in that experience, that it somehow gives us some innate comfort. And, and part of what I think is so interesting is that in our regular interactions, if we look on a regular basis, we see that we are distancing ourselves from death in myriad ways. You go to a shiva house, the family that's sitting shiva, our custom is that we're not supposed to be the ones to engage or initiate conversation. That conversation is supposed to be initiated by the mourners. All right. And, and, and that comes right through. That comes, that's, I think that's right in the Torah when Nadav and Abihu, Aaron's sons, dies. Moses attempts to console Aaron. And then the text tells us, and Aaron was silent. Exactly. And in our attempt to sometimes console them, we end up doing violence to them. And you go to a, a shiva and you end up seeing that people are often talking about politics and they're talking about the weather and they're often talking about anything and everything other than the reason why they've gathered because we are so uncomfortable. And they're talking about politics, the weather, sports, whatever, with the mourners? And with each other. And it's remarkable because I think that story of Nadav and Avihu and the, in some ways, what I would call the misfire of Moses. Right is such a powerful lesson for us. 
is that we should be sitting and creating space for the person who is grappling with death. And then we have the chance to be able to move in tandem with them. But that's not how most of us do it. We want to give the pithy little quote, the little platitude that somehow makes it all better. And yet, for any of us who have loved and lost, we know that no pithy words make the pain feel any better. I think you're exactly right. It's literally no pithy words, no slogans will help the mourner at all. Yeah. And and as you put it, they're all kind of, if you say, what did he die of to the mourner? That's just like, it's so irrelevant. It's almost insensitive. Right. And if you and, say he's and, in a better place, that's not a Jewish idea. And it's just not a Jewish idea. He's in a better place. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, almost nothing you say can be helpful. So what do mourners typically, how do they typically enable us to help them? Well, I think you, in surfacing the Davinavihu story, I think you just captured something really powerful, Mark, is that we don't really know what happened and why they were killed. You know, they offered a strange fire. We don't really know the story. And the Torah doesn't, you know, for all the moments when the Torah gives us incredible detail about perhaps things that we may feel we don't need that much detail. And for something as dramatic as the death of Aaron's two sons and some of the first priests of this world, we're given almost no backstory. And yet... That may, right there, be lesson number one. Lesson number two, I think you articulated, which is that Aaron fell silent because Aaron, in his grief, realized he didn't really have any words. And as you said, maybe point number three is that Moses could have and maybe should have taken a page from Aaron. Moses, who had never gone through what Aaron had gone through. Moses, who perhaps is so used to being the orator and teacher of the people, believed that somehow he could teach this into comfort. And yet, I do believe that our uh, our tradition of how we approach Shiva is exactly the right one. What would it be when we crossed that threshold into a household of mourning, that we were able to channel Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, that it's better that we enter into that space than to a joyous party, because in the space of mourning, there's a lesson of life to be learned. And that learning doesn't come from us talking. That learning comes from us listening and asking questions. And I wonder what would happen if we approached a person in grief and said, tell me about your loved one. What was their life like? Tell me about their lesson, the, the lessons of their legacies. Beautiful. And Mark, I, I, you know, I, I know for you, as a person who has interacted and continues to interact with so many people, so many different stripes, so many different backgrounds, one of the things I've always appreciated is you are a person of curiosity. And whether it's because you're the rabbi's husband or just because you're wired this way, I feel like that may be the most powerful tool we can bring not just because that's the path to knowledge, but that's also the path to connection and relationship. That's right. Beautiful. So uh, Ben, thank you for such an enlightening conversation about the Garden of Eden and so much that uh, derives from it directly and, and indirectly. And uh, just one last question, um, going from one book, the Torah, to a very different book, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He tells the story of uh, running into a uh, someone with whom he served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had uh, saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, he said, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned first that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, that there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So Ben, in your years of being a rabbi, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? So I'll try to see if I can tie this back full circle here. One of the things that I have learned is that I believe that we are all wired to be boundary crossers. Hmm. And in a world that often tries to train us out of that, when we look up and see who are the heroes of this world, 
who are the people that we always reach after, whether we're related to them or whether they are distant visions of other cultures and other religions, our heroes are always the boundary crossers. And when we think about our inner dream, it is always somehow channeling that sense of difference, distinguishment, some aspect that allows us to go counter to the ways and expectations of others. And whether it's the dream of being a superhero, whether it's the dream of being the president, or whether it's the dream somehow of creating the cure, whether to COVID-19 or to mm -hmm. cancer, that all of us have some element that I think comes right from our psyche and our soul, that we want to be the ones that will cross boundaries towards new creation and new elevation and enlightenment. So that's one aspect. Hmm. The other aspect that I feel like I've learned just from sitting with so many people in different ages and stages is that I really believe that fundamentally the most essential need also comes right from the beginning of Genesis here. That is not good for a person to be alone. Hmm. That our most fundamental need is connectedness. Connectedness to each other. Connectedness to a sense of identity and to a history and to a past. Connectedness to maybe a purpose and a hope. Maybe connectedness to God. But it is in that idea of connectedness that we are not solitary beings that we find one of the most prevalent threads that goes through a eulogy at the end of life is that people are measured not by their stock portfolios or not by the pieces of paper on their wall or the titles in front of their names. They are measured and they're remembered because of the lives that they touched and the relationships they built. So for me, those are the two things that I come back to and reminded of again and again and again. And I think as a parent, it's really interesting to figure out how do you cultivate and enable boundary crossers, but also make sure they know when to follow the rules. And how do you foster that sense of independence, but also make sure that we're always cultivating connection? Ben, thank you as ever for such an interesting and enlightening discussion on so many subjects that derive from the Torah. So thank you. Such a joy, Mark. Such an honor and really thrilled to be in conversation with the rabbi's husband. You are the God of the if you need the